If you're in the market for a super addictive puzzle game, you have to check out Mini Motorways on Apple Arcade. It's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade, and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Hi, my name is Kyle Poletto, and here at Sifter, we're proud to bring you some of the best independent games journalism in Australia. I'm excited to introduce a brand new weekly show to the Sifter roster, a gaming news show called Walkthrough. I'll let you know which company has been bought out this week, all the blockbuster titles that have just been announced, the controversies and the exciting developments every Sunday. I'll also give you an update on the titles out this week and go in depth with some of the bigger stories. I hope you'll join me as I guide you through the news on Walkthrough. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. G'day, my name's Gianni Giovanni. I'm the executive producer of Sifter. Today, I'm going to bring you a really interesting conversation that I had uh, with one of Australia's video game development veterans. Uh, they've seen both sides of the coin from the creative investment side, they've seen the government lobbying industries uh, support side, uh, and they've also headed up uh, studios as well. I'm talking, of course, of Tony Lawrence, who is the COO and executive director at Mighty Kingdom in South Australia. If you haven't followed Mighty Kingdom in the last year or so, you might have missed that they're one of Australia's fastest growing development studios. They're based in South Australia, but they've got teams all over the country working remotely or in a mix of uh, at homework or, or in the studio itself. I started off by asking, uh, what it's like to be part of a studio that is growing so quickly uh, and what the next six months uh, is likely to look like for the studio. Right, I guess the last six months is really uh, the outcome of what we've been looking to do for, for a number of years now. So we've seen that where there is an opportunity for an Australian studio to be able to, to grow, um, we'd seen no reason why they can't have an international global publisher recognised um, something like the size of an EA or Ubisoft coming from here. Um, and our, I guess the founder of the company and current CEO, Phil Mays, has had that vision for quite some time. So we've followed a strategy to be able to get to the point where we, we can expand, um, that we can take on from, I guess, totally vertically integrated from development through to publishing um, a number of games, whether they be uh, mobile or, or console. So over the last year or so, I think a bit more than a year, we went down a, a path to uh, list on the stock exchange, the Australian stock exchange. That allowed us the capital to, to grow further and rapidly to implement our, our strategy uh, to start developing games. So essentially, we were doing, developing five games the year before. Now we're developing 10 simultaneously. We'll probably do some more in, in that time. Um, but essentially, we're executing on that strategy um, post-IPO. Now, that just basically means we've doubled the size of the studio in that time. Once we've had the capital available, 
we have the projects coming online, we are able to hire against those projects. Um, as most projects that we take on have a live ops um, component to them, that requires a team to be ongoing. So the, the, the game isn't just one and done, it is one and ongoing, and that's how we make games these days. So we have no, no reason or no need to, to stop growing as long as the, the content's coming through, that's, that's going to be able to make revenue for us. Um, we accept that there's many different business models we want to work with. So um, depending on the game, it's, it's a work for hire. We work with Mattel for a work for hire contract. We work on co-development contracts with licensing IPs such as Code and Chop Chop with Funcom. Um, we currently are working on our own IP. So we're making a game called, what's codenamed Ballstars currently, it's not its real name just yet, which is a online multiplayer racing game. I will not tell you too much more about that, but it's so fun, and it has been since we, um, I guess, first came up with the concept. Um, and look, we're basically doing a lot, a lot of work. So there's no intention to stop growing as long as we're able to put out that work and, and you know, start making money. Um, I'm curious about that IPO because obviously becoming a public company means that you now have more than one masters. Uh, you know, that's your there is a shareholder, you know. Uh, obligation as part of that and I just want to know in terms of you being on the board as well what sort of responsibility do you have uh, to the to the company but also now to the shareholders as someone who has that sort of dual identity we we take it I guess the same kind of responsibilities in a certain way um, essentially what it comes down to is doing well in this business is releasing good content um, if we release good content uh, the returns will come that returns will be forwarded back to shareholders so essentially look the, the, the business hasn't changed, but to some extent, the way we have have to do business is changing. So there are a, a lot of governance um, that's behind it being a listed company, and that's basically you know, for us again not too much of a change. It's about running a business well and being able to report against that. The the difference being a, a public company rather than a private company is how we communicate that to market. So while we were pretty much communicating to market, as in we make games. We're great people, and Mighty Kingdom certainly has a reputation of, of doing those things. Um, now we, we have to communicate differently. Like, here's what our expected returns are going to be. This is what our budget looks like. This is what's this is what we need to do to if we announce a partnership or a contract value. Those things weren't really anything we ever had to report before. Now we also have to be very careful about what we say. So we must ensure that the market has access to all information. Um, at the same time. So I can't pull out an investor aside and say, by the way, you've got this fantastic contract with this amazing IP um, because that would be illegal. So <laughs> we have to be very, very clear about what we can communicate, what we can't communicate, when we communicate it, and how it fits within the, in the governance framework. Um, now, I've been making games for quite some time. I think this is probably the, you know, I, I really love making games. Um, that's why I'm in this business. Um, and it, and it's, it's become a, something of a, of a secondary thing for me right now. Um, you know, essentially I, I still get to work in there and I, I, I can't help myself but you know, put my fingers in a pie because that's what we do here, right? Um, but it, it's a lot less than I used to do, put it that way. How does that feel? Uh, I get a bit, you know, edgy sometimes, you know? It's, it's kind of like when I, if I want to see something, I, can, I know I can prove it. And that's the side of the team as well. It's like. You don't want someone like me who's, who's really, you know, a six foot two gorilla walking in and saying, hey, I saw what you did. How are you doing it that way? And it's like, no, you guys need to be empowered. I want leaders of the future in, in this company. I'll step out. So it's kind of like um, it works kind of really well as, as a company scaling up 
my responsibility changes, it actually works well for both me and the people who are making those games now. Um, so yeah, I, I guess the timing is good. The timing is good for everybody. Um, you talked a little bit at the beginning about wanting to be an EA-sized company, um, but you know one of the contrasting factors about Mighty Kingdom that's really interesting to me is that you know fundamental flexibility in work seems to be something that's really key to what you do. You work four days a week. You've got uncapped leave. People can potentially work from anywhere. I've spoken to people in your studio who work in Tasmania, who work in Sydney, who all all around the place. Um, how do you manage that particular structure when it doesn't really look like many other game studios around? Well, I think Edios, Montreal, now it's just this week or four day week, which was like, yes, you're coming around. Um, I think we, there is some structure to, to an extent. Essentially, we have we partners um, all over the world, basically in Europe and North America. Um, so we need to have some structure around that. As, as it turns out, the, the working week um, in North America and the time difference allows us to not work Mondays and we're in line with them for you know, four out of five days of their week. So that, that's the structure we have around it. For us, we, we've, we've long known the benefits of what a four-day week would look like um, in that there is enough research to show that um, while it does sound like you're doing four five days in four days, which is kind of true, the quality of work is, is a bit different in that you're totally focused at work for those four days. Um, and the, to the time you'd usually take at work to do whatever you want to do, go and see a doctor, have an appointment of some kind, um, you end up doing it on a Monday. And by the way, you get 52 uh, long weekends a year. So that kind of works. I mean, the other thing for us is, I mean, I guess all the other policies we have in place, and we're always looking for, I guess, progressive policies, is around how we look view diversity. So essentially, you know, there's long been research that shows access to work and flexibility is a key to having a diverse workforce. Uh, we absolutely go out and find what those policies are to ensure that our workforce is, is as diverse as it possibly can. Um, and it is. Our gender split is just for a start. These are the things we can report on. It's close to 50-50. I don't think you'd find too many studios in the world with that kind of gender split. Um, and that, you know, we put that down to our policy base as well as our, our, our work flexibility. Um, we've embraced working from, from home. You can do it anywhere. I mean, half of our production staff are in Sydney. Most of our QA staff are in um, Tasmania. Uh, and we find it works. I mean, and, and I guess someone from myself's perspective, while dubious of how well that would work, the pandemic forced a decision upon us. It worked really, really well. Um, and now it's like, well, that's just how we work now, right? You don't need to work in an office. We, we have the tools and we have the capability to be able to work anywhere, so we should. That for us um, always comes through in the content. So we make gains um, for audiences which are typically underserved, um, family audiences, broad audiences, women audiences. Um, and I guess a 52-year-old uh, bloke like myself is probably not that target audience um, and will probably get a lot more input from people who are that target audience and hence the diversity of the studio. But essentially, that, that diversity is really about a better business, right? I cannot tell you how much um, research or papers that we've read over the last decades or so or longer which say that diversity has um, direct positive impacts in business and that's what we're looking for. It's a good business decision. Let's talk a little bit about your, your path to, to Mighty Kingdom. You were previously the general manager of 2K Australia, a studio that I have spoken to many former people who have worked there, have gone on to do amazing things in the past, but, you know, was famously wound up after a, a, the projects. And, you know, it was, I think, a sad time for a lot of people in that studio and, and sad time for Canberra um, as well. Um, can you tell me what sort of lessons you brought from, from that experience into to working at Mighty Kingdom? 
Yeah, so that was my first job in games as a general manager of TK Australia. I'm not a bad first gig coming off Bioshock to make Bioshock 2 and then Bioshock Infinite and, and then uh, Borderlands for a sequel. Um, I'm particularly proud of, of my work there and I'm particularly proud of everyone I worked with at that studio. I think for me, it was, a, you know, it was my introduction to how to make games. Um, and I learned quite a bit. I mean, I, I came from a bit of a hard-nosed background from a few years after doing an MBA, but I spent you know, the previous 12 years as a sound engineer at the Opera House, so I understand the creative, creative process quite quite well. Um, that taught me a lot about how to treat people in a, in a creative industry to get an outcome which has a due date, which is very hard. I mean, essentially, you know, take two is a listed company, has dates, and needs to report things. Um, but I had a, a fairly understanding senior management. I reported directly to the CEO at, at the time. Um, and their perspective was Tony does things a bit differently down there in Australia, but he seems to get the results and they're pretty good. So they, they were very, very, I guess, they allowed me to do a few things which, which weren't normal for, uh, I guess, a, a US-based games company. Um, I didn't, I don't do create or command and control structures. I'm very much a collaborative manager. My perspective is, I'm really good at being a manager. I'm, I'm a crap programmer and I'm a terrible artist, so keep me away from that stuff. Um, but I do know how to, to motivate people. So essentially, my investment in my people to, to make those games was, was what I was really all about. Um, my main role, and I still see my main role as a, as a leader of a company, is to rip out the roadblocks to make sure everyone has nothing in their way to achieve their best. And that's what my aim was with working with, with TK Australia. Um, we had, I guess, a bit of a rough time. Um, I think it's been well documented. I've, I've read the books um, and read the many articles about some of the, the things that we went through. Um, but through all of that, I think we had a, a great um, great group of developers. The whole time I was there, that, that was always pretty cool. Um, we're still in touch, all of us. Uh, we have our, our own channels, etc., from different kind of mediums. Um, when we catch up, when we can catch up, we do catch up. Um, and I'm even on good terms with, with 2K management still. Um, so, you know, ultimately, I think it was a pretty, it was a pretty awful time. Um, having to deliver that message myself to, to our people was really difficult. Um, I've loved seeing what everyone's been doing. And, you know, I'm always there to, to encourage or, or help any way I, I, I can. Um, and and, and that, that's, that comes back both ways as well. So, you know, we, we, we still get on. And I'm, I'm very proud of the relationships I've maintained from 2K. Um, you've also worn, I guess, two hats in terms of interfacing with government. You've worked for the government directly um, in terms of in the creative industries, uh, and you've also worked as the president of GDAA, the director of IGEA. Um, what is the conversation that needs to be had about games in Australia? Because there was a lot of excitement this year about the uh, the tax offset that was, uh, you know, due to be implemented. But, um, you know, what is the conversation we need to have in order to get uh, a model like we used to have with the Australian Interactive Games Fund uh, re-implemented, that sort of support, things that we would see similar in, in other countries and, or even in Victoria where they've got a great um, state-level support? Yeah, okay. It's interesting for me. I mean, the Interactive Games Fund was a, 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 an agreement we came to in my office in, in TK in Canberra. Um, you know, I think Tony Reid has famously talked about that many times. Um, but I think that, that that's what we need to get to just for a start. I mean, I think that the argument or the, the discussion is really how big games is as an industry and the potential that Australia has as to be able to compete in that industry. Um, it is, you know, it is bigger than film and, and music combined as, as far as, um, you know, if revenues are concerned. It is easily quite big. Comparatively, Australia has an industry of around about 2,000 developers. 
Um, if you look at something similar in Canada, which is a population of about 5 million more people, it also has 10 times the number of developers. Um, that's the kind of growth we can see. I can look at the UK, for instance, um, who have introduced something similar to a digital game tax asset in the last five years and seen that industry grow exponentially over that particular time. So the evidence is there as you support games, you end up with a whole industry and pretty quickly comparatively. Um, I think we've got to get beyond that games are bad. And I think that it's that simple, right? It, it's that you know, games aren't great for people. Um, and focus on what all the research says, which is games are good. Um, they, they do wonderful things for you know, your, I guess, socializing. We do things differently now than we did, say, when I was playing Asteroids in, in the 1970s. Um, we do, I guess, we it improves hand coordination, puzzle solving, and all the things that are, that, that, that are good for people. So it's really that argument of understanding the value in games, um, not just uh, for the players, and we're all about the players, but it's also about the value to the economy. Now, what I have from government is we've, we've had that argument, and we won, right? The economics of game development in, in Australia is worth being supported. Um, now we need to show the evidence, and, and we will. Like, I know we will. Um, and I guess having been fairly privileged in where I've been able to work with my government contacts, with working with IGEA, having worked with GDA, um, uh, we're about to see large investment in games in Australia, and I can't wait. It's, I mean, if I, if I talk to my, my peers in, say, Canada, um, where we directly ask them, what's the effect of having a 3,000-person studio in your city? And it's like, well, they train our devs and we get them over here and they can't do start doing great work and, yeah, and when they want to leave, they're going to start their own studio and go back somewhere else. It's like fantastic. So, you know, more jobs for Australians in a growing industry that's uh, you know, an industry of the future is only a good thing. Um, but I also think that, that you've got to support every part of the ecosystem. So um, supporting a, a, a large uh, games studio, essentially, I know, we will qualify, Monarchy will qualify for the digital game tax offset, I hope, um, I expect so. Uh, but as, as a broad-based uh, tax offset um, of 30%, um, which is similar to the well, to Canada and, and, and the UK. Um, however, where that means is that states can start competing on smaller grants, so that most of them have with a 10% uh, rebate of some kind. Um, the threshold is quite high in some states. I think in Victoria, it's, it's a million dollars, which is similar to the um, film offset. In South Australia, it's, it's not. It's 250k. So come on down to South Australia. Um, and the, I mean, both New South Wales and Queensland, it is around that, and you know, as it's negotiable. Um, that gets about the mid-sized studios in, depending where you are. And I, I recommend South Australia again. Um, however, it doesn't deal with like, the, uh, the, the burgeoning, the up-and-coming, the, the indies, where a grant system is probably more appropriate. Um, and that is really about, look, you've got a great idea, you've got backing, you've got people who are interested in, in, in it, let's, let's back that particular project and see how you go. And that's your, you know, you're basically your, your one to five to ten person studio you can develop a game in a particular time, that kind of funding makes a difference. You know, and I think we can look at people like League of Geeks, for instance, as a success story from the, you know, the, the, the funding that was available for it in grant form. Um, so I think all of those things need to be in place for a, a healthy and growing ecosystem of game development in Australia. I think we're pretty close to getting there. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to a great future. That's Tony Lawrence, CEO of South Australia's Mighty Kingdom, one of Australia's fastest growing studios. Uh, Tony recently spoke at Gamescom Asia at the weekend. You can find a video version of this story on our website, 
That's sifter.com.au. Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Scott Quigg, Sarah Ireland, Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang, Adam Christou, Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and my name is Gianni Giovanni. I'm the executive producer. If you are looking for more, there's heaps more for you to find on sifter.com.au. We've got a stack of new interviews that have just been posted over the last couple of weeks. They're all part of the Sifter Showcase for Melbourne International Games Week. Uh, Broad teams working on lots of different projects. I think you'll find something there that you'll love. We've got articles on there as well. We've got videos, we've got live streams and much, much more. So that's sifter.com.au. And if you're looking to join a good supportive community, you can be part of the Sifter Discord. Uh, it is a really great space to be in. Uh, there's Sifter Radio where you can listen to a 24-7 run of all of our episodes playing at any time. Just jump on in, have a, have a listen, see what's playing. Uh, or you can talk about your creative project, see what you're sh- working on, uh, share it with other people uh, and just be part of a great space. So to join that, go to sifter.com.au forward slash discord. That address again sifter.com.au forward slash discord that's it for this episode until next time have fun Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 